the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Oftentimes in America, when we think about the issue of slavery, it's been not only a huge black eye on America's reputation going back into her history, but also a point of pride. Pride in the sense that come the mid to later 1800s, we finally came to the conclusion that slavery was not a good thing. It was something that deservedly needed to be abolished. And while there's many arguments to suggest that we're still sort of recuperating from the impact of multiple generations of slavery in America going back into the 1800s, those that would think that with the abolishment of slavery in America that ended slavery, period, would be sorely and sadly mistaken. In fact, while slavery in the fashion that we're familiar with from a historical viewpoint may not exist in that truest form, other forms of slavery not only abound today, both here in the United States, but even domestically, and it has become a multi-billion dollar industry. As we dive into the sad, murky details of slavery going on and human trafficking. I'll warn you that some segments of our conversation in this portion of Lifeline may not be appropriate for young years. So if you have children about, you may want to busy them elsewhere. As we engage in conversation with a special guest tonight, he has served as an undercover investigator and outlines his experiences inside of a new book called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. And Daniel Walker, thanks so much for being with us on the program. No, thanks for having me. This is a topic that I suppose to to the average Westerner, the average American, uh, is probably shocked to find out that this even goes on. I mean, to be sure, we know that in big cities all over America, just as they are in in many parts of the world, there is one level or another of prostitution. But when we get into the topic of sex trafficking and slavery, this is bigger, darker, and more insidious than perhaps most people could even imagine. Yeah, certainly that was the biggest shock for me, uh, not only how easy it was to find uh, all around the world, but the magnitude of it, and uh, that there are more people in slavery in our generation than at any other time in history uh, does boggle the mind. I mean, more people in slavery, as you've said, than, uh, than when slavery was alive in this country, than when William Wilberforce was fighting the transatlantic slave trade. Indeed, more slavery today than when Moses led the slaves out of Egypt. Uh, all those years ago, um, and uh, and the nature of it, of course, is the only thing that's that's different. There aren't people standing on street corners with chains around their ankles. They are largely hidden behind closed doors, uh, and uh, the fastest growing form of modern day slavery is is uh, the trafficking of of women and children. Is this what allows it to flourish the way it has, becoming, as you suggest, Daniel, a multi-billion dollar global industry because so much of it takes place uh, either under the cover of darkness or behind closed doors? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think if uh, I'm confident that uh, if people were still being sold on our street corners uh, and uh, the chains were visible around their ankles, uh, we would do something about it. And the church primarily would... uh, would answer its call to to be the organization, the leading group of people who have a mandate and a mission 
uh, to set people free from everything that enslaves them, whether that's uh, personal sin or whatever sucks the life out of us, but also literal slavery. But yeah, like you said, we we don't see it. It's uh, it's behind closed doors. It's often behind fronts for other businesses. Uh, but we need to see it, and I guess that's why I wanted to write this book so that people would be able to see what I saw during uh, four years uh, behind those doors. Do we need to be clear in articulating for the benefit of the audience, Daniel, that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's not singularly the issue of, of prostitution. Uh, we often think about prostitutes as a woman who, who volunteers it because maybe there's a sense of desperation. She gets pulled into the lifestyle. Maybe she has been solicited into this lifestyle as making money at it. But generally, I think most of us in the West kind of get the sense that any time a woman wanted to really step out of that lifestyle, they would have the opportunity to do so um, we're talking about something here that when you apply the word slavery to sex trafficking, you, you literally mean women and in some cases children that are pulled into this against their will and literally are, are locked in no different than a slave would be in the traditional sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of deception uh, involved and false lies and promises that are used to lure uh, young woman and as you've said children into this industry but uh, yeah, make no mistake it is slavery in the extreme and uh, one of the first cases I came across was um, in the company of a, a US Special Forces soldier actually who uh, was operating in that part of the world and he uh, liked what we were doing he said you know I'll come along and provide you some security and I said that would be great uh, absolutely so he came with me to this uh, location and the, um, the pimp uh, took us into a a, a small uh, brothel and uh, he brought in two 14 year old girls uh, I was recording the transaction with a covert camera uh, we paid some cash to uh, return at some future date to have sex with them and so we were gathering evidence that could be used under local law in that place uh, to r rescue those uh, girls and, and facilitate the prosecution of the perpetrators uh, and so this soldier you know he looked at me like okay you know are we good to go and I knew from the intelligence we'd received that there were even younger uh, children available in that place. And so I said, ah, oh, you know, these, these girls are a bit old for me. And this pimp, he, uh, he winked and smiled and he said, wait there, and he disappeared and he came back into the room. And he had two little girls who were about six years old. And uh, they had pigtails and teddy bears on their t-shirts. And uh, this, um, this soldier, he shut down at that point, he went quiet. And uh, nothing, you know, he's a guy that's been there and done that, but nothing had prepared him for uh, two little six-year-old girls being offered to him for 30 US dollars an hour for, for whatever he wanted to do to them, basically. And, uh, you know, at that point I took over. I taught Sunday school in my youth, and I got them to sit on my knee, and uh, as far as the pimp was concerned, I was the perfect sleaze, but I was getting them up close to the camera, capturing their faces and their names and as much information as I could about where they came from. Uh, and then we, we then paid uh, for some future transaction where, when we would return, and we did return, but we didn't come back with customers, we came back with police, and they, they raided that place, they arrested the perpetrators, and we rescued those kids. You have a background, of course, in uh, police and investigative work. How did you initially get, get pulled into investigating this, uh, the most insidious of crimes? Well, I think right from when I first became a Christian, actually, uh, as a very young man, I, I um, was in my teens doing the 40-hour the famine, uh, as it's called in New Zealand. I think you have a 30-hour famine in the U.S., um, and we were sent the publicity material about what the money was going for that year, and it was talking about these children as young as 13, 
14 who were selling themselves on the streets and my younger sister was 13 at the time and uh, you know I, I grew up with Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist and so on I, I just thought this was something of an, of an age gone by and so to discover that it was more rife than ever in our large cities around the world and uh, I, I prayed a dangerous prayer I guess uh, um, God if you can use me uh, one day to do something about this uh, here I am and uh, I subsequently heard Tony Campolo a uh, motivational speaker talk about a, a program that he and uh, Ron Sider who wrote uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger uh, had put together to train young people basically to go into these places around the world and um, uh, break the, poverty, the cycles of poverty and oppression uh, and um, after uh, working in the New Zealand police for about 10 or 11 years I heard about a number of organisations that were then using the skills of um, uh, police officers, investigators, lawyers and so on to get this kind of evidence which was being used to set people free so I um, seized the opportunity. And of course, in doing so, you've now invested a lifetime, not just in investigating the cases from an undercover investigative standpoint, but also helping to literally capture and, and release many of these, uh, both women and children that have been pulled into slavery. Yes, yeah, uh, it was amazing for me. I, I went into one brothel and um, the woman lined up as they do, and uh, they were from Korea, Japan, Thailand, uh, Philippines, Latin America. And uh, I chose uh, Jenny, who, who was from Korea, and I uh, took her into the bedroom. I then made up some excuse as to why I wasn't going to have sex with her and just uh, started to talk with her and just ask the questions. So, you know, where are you from? What's your real name? Uh, why, why can't you leave? Why have they got your passport? And who is it that, that receives money from this place? And um, uh, the amazing thing for me was that, um, well, Jenny said she had traveled all the way from Korea. She'd been promised a legitimate job and uh, when she arrived at the location her passport was taken she was raped and she was told that if she ever tried to leave uh, not only would she be uh, brutalized further uh, but her family and her little sister and her little brother back home she would never see them again and uh, so often the chains that hold these women are um, chains of terror and uh, it's, it is organized crime that, um, that in many cases keep them there the amazing thing for me was that this brothel was not in Southeast Asia uh, it was not in Latin America or Eastern Europe. I mean, Jenny was being held captive in, a, in the suburbs of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Daniel Walker, our guest, a look at his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator and details his experiences into the insidious, dark, evil world of sex trafficking and slavery in a new book that's been newly published by InterVarsity Press entitled God in a Brothel, an Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. Daniel, in the years that you have worked to help rescue these women, sometimes men, many children, both here in the United States and internationally, what is your perception of the problem? As we talk more about this in a public fashion, as organizations are being created to not only raise awareness, but try to uh, assist uh, police authorities in bringing the criminals responsible for sex sex, uh, trafficking to justice, do you get the impression the situation, well, the problem is getting any better or is it getting worse? No, I think it's getting worse. Uh, some uh, estimates say that in the next 10 years, the 
commercial sexual exploitation and sale of women and children will become the number one earner for organized criminal groups, surpassing the sale of drugs. Uh, as you said, a $32 billion U.S. industry at the moment. But unlike uh, drugs, which you know you sell once and they're gone, you get a child from when she's five and you sell her multiple times a day until she's in her 20s or gets AIDS and dies. Uh, the, the profits are astronomical and uh, the penalties are often less for selling women and children than they are for selling drugs. So, uh, no, the, um, this industry is growing, it's booming. And... Um, and again, that's why I wrote the book, so that uh, in the hope that people would see what I saw, and in particular that the church would respond as uh, one of uh, the best positioned organizations in the world. Uh, we're, we're in pretty much every community where this goes on. Uh, in, very, in very many cases, um, uh, church and parachurch organizations, they know uh, what is going on, or at least have people within their community, their faith community, they often have all the assets, all the available skills necessary. There's, there's an investigator, there's a lawyer, a business person, a communications person, and they just need to make that connection between this God who came to set a, a human race free from slavery. You know, it's, it's as old as the Garden of Eden, uh, right through to, to Moses leading people out of literal slavery, through to the great abolitionists who, uh, who came to set us free from everything that, that sucks the life out of us. And... Uh, I think at a time when there are more people involved, more people enslaved than ever before, if, if we as the church are silent and not actively engaged, then we cannot say with any credibility that we represent the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who came to set us free. If the church on this topic, Daniel, remains silent, uh, disinterested and distant from the topic, it seems to be something that, that's ugly, it's vile, it's evil, uh, something that perhaps uh, we'd rather not talk about in so-called polite con uh, company. How, how bad is it? Give me a snapshot, if you would, for someone who is hearing this topic discussed frankly and openly maybe for the first time, and they're staring at dis in disbelief at their radio receiver right now, thinking, I can't imagine I'm even hearing a conversation about slavery and underage sex trafficking taking place on a Christian radio station. Walk us through the profile of one of the children that you have dealt with and how bad things can get if we don't get engaged, if we don't step in to make a difference. Oh, well, um, I guess uh, I can tell you about a pimp that I met a, a couple of streets away from uh, where Martin Luther King wrote his, um, his uh, famous passages about freedom and, uh, and having a dream for this country, the United States of America, where people would live in, in freedom and uh, it would be a country of justice. And uh, he was a pimp in uh, the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was telling me how easy it is to walk into pretty much any mall in the United States. And he said within a very short space of time, he could identify young girls who were vulnerable. Uh, and they came from all walks of life, not just poor and, and uh, uh, girls and boys, but... Um, or runaways, but also from wealthy families. And he said, uh, I said, how did you do it? You know, I was pretending to be uh, enamored by his ability. And he said, oh, it's easy, I sell dreams. I just sell them dreams that any seduces and enslaves with his, with his sweet-smelling lies, uh, which ultimately, of course, become nightmares. And um, yeah, as I said uh, earlier, it, it's not just in the brothels and, and back rooms of uh, Southeast Asia, but in the in the bedrooms, in the, in the uh, massage parlors, in the back uh, rooms of office buildings uh, all across the United States, there are women and children who are being held against their will. And, 
Yeah, I guess um, for those who are wondering whether this is indeed something that the church should be engaged in, um, you know, I guess in the United States I hear a lot of talk about being a believer. Uh, and Jesus himself said, you know, that being a believer is not enough. Uh, you know, that so, so what? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Big deal. You know, even, even the demons believe that. Uh, that it's about... Uh, you know, it goes on to say religion, as, as it says in James, you know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to rescue orphans and widows in their distress. And in fact, uh, as you know, Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious of his day and said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And, and throughout the Old and New Testament, he makes it very clear um, that his will is to set people free from whatever enslaves them. And, you know, in the Christian church, we talk about knowing God, and that is indeed the heart of our message, that we are known and that we can know God. And the prophet Jeremiah, uh, 2216, he defended the cause or rescued the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In other words, he rescued people from slavery. Is that not what it means to know me, says the Lord? So I guess the challenge is, you know, if, if we're not aware of this, and we're not somehow engaged, then can we really say that we know him at all? There's a lot of talk about legalization of prostitution, even in San Francisco, um, under our um, former district attorney, Terrence Hallinan. They had gone to simply not enforcing the law, and if the police arrested both prostitutes and or Johns, uh, would drop them down off of the jail, they would be out in less than 24 hours, and the district attorney's office simply did not prosecute, considering this a so-called victimless crime. If, in fact, there is any level of success at the push toward so-called legalization of prostitution, is that somehow make this any better? You know, from my experience, um, well, I, I do want to say that uh, I think it is wrong to criminalize small children, you know, 13, 14 years old, who often end up uh, under the control of a, a pimp who is effectively, a, he's a criminal, he's a slave master. And so often it's these uh, 13 and 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls who are being uh, arrested and um, thankfully there is some great training in law enforcement around the world and in this country uh, to encourage law enforcement officers to look beneath the surface and to ask those questions so that they um, they do and can identify that actually the people with the power and the people that are making the money out of this crime are you know 99 percent of the time not the uh, the small girls involved it's actually the the pimps and in some cases, the very organized pimps and, and organizations that put them on the streets. Uh, and of course, it's the men who, uh, who prey on them and use them. So if, if it has to be criminalized, then, then uh, you know, law enforcement is slowly moving toward and recognizing that they need to criminalize the, uh, the buyers and the sellers, not the most vulnerable person in the transaction. Uh, but it, you know what, I've, I've been in countries where it's uh, legal and where it's illegal. And it largely, um, from my experience, has been irrelevant. In both of those countries, there are still women and children who are forced. It's still exploitation, then, no matter how you slice it, even if the government somehow codifies it and says, okay, we're going to look the other way and consider this uh, not to be something that we'll prosecute on, as in the case of San Francisco, or simply legalize it, does not erase or modify the fact that it's still exploitation. Am I right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, where you know, it's uh, widely known around the world, it's, that it's uh, legal. Uh, a huge percentage, um, uh, I was told recently, but it's escaped my memory, but a huge percentage of those women who are on display behind those glass windows in Amsterdam are still victims of human trafficking. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, there is so much division, or can be a huge potential for division when it comes to do we legalise it, do we criminalise it. I guess what I um, have found is that what we can all agree on and what we can, you know, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal, we can all sit around the table and agree and work together and agree that women and children should not be forced into this industry and they should not be sold as slaves. And that's something that we can be united about. And whatever end of the political spectrum or whatever our views, uh, you know, we can all get together and agree that in the extreme form, these little five and six-year-old girls that I have carried out of brothels around the world, uh, that that should not be happening. And even if they're 14, 15, 16-year-old American girls who are under the control of a pimp who has so enslaved them mentally, psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, that they need us to gather around them and to, and to do what we can to set them free. Amen. And that the church should not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the situation. The book is called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. Newly published by InterVarsity Press, and its author has been our guest today, undercover investigator Daniel Walker. Daniel, I know it's a tough subject. We appreciate so much the work you've done on behalf of not only bringing uh, the, the perpetrators to justice, but bringing um, hope and eventually released to those victims of all of this. Thanks so much for taking some time to visit with us today. No, thank you. I mean, like I said, I think it's something that everyone can get engaged in at some level, and that's the exciting part of it and, and does bring hope. So, no, thanks for having me. Thanks again. Daniel Walker, God in a Brothel, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the growing concerns that I have had, and the reason why we've discussed the issue of climate change and greenhouse gases and the Copenhagen Climate Summit, has been the fact that the church has largely been fairly silent on this issue so far. I think we're we're fairly, like everyone else, confused about wherein exactly lies the truth with regard to global warming and our responsibility to address it as we've been given charge and responsibility uh, over Earth by our Creator. And spending some time today addressing this very issue, particularly as we try to muddle through some of the increased controversies since the release of some fairly damaging emails out of a climate change organization based in England. Uh, we're joined now by Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. Dr. Beisner is with the Cornwall Alliance. This is an organization of clergy, theologians, religious leaders, scientists, academics, and policy experts committed to bringing a balanced biblical view of stewardship to the critical issues at hand in relationship to the environment. And uh, Dr. Beisner, thanks so much for your time and joining us on the program today. Thank you very much, Craig, for having me on. I guess one of the big words that is key to your organization's goals that largely seems to be missing from the debate over climate change is this question of balance. Yeah, we, we really uh, we aim at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation for a careful balancing of stewardship of the creation, that is, good environmental care, with a careful attention to the needs of the world's poor. And the reason that that's so important is that, particularly in, in richer countries, 
most of us are so far removed from the terrible problems of abject poverty, wondering where the next meal is going to come from, or maybe wondering where the next five meals will come from, uh, wondering whether we're going to, we're going to have uh, clothing or pure drinking water uh, or sewage sanitation. Most of us are so far removed from those concerns that we don't realize that when environmental protection legislation uh, has a, a harmful effect on the poor, on the income of the poor, and the potential for them to uh, increase their way, uh, wealth through the creation of wealth, uh, that's devastating for them. So an environmental policy that might, oh, say, add $1,000 a year to our expenses, it's pretty uncomfortable. We don't like it. But it doesn't threaten us with death. But when people are living on a dollar or two a day, or perhaps even five dollars a day, uh, increasing the cost of living by adopting environmental policy that makes uh, the doing of business more expensive can be devastating. We think a lot of poor countries that, for example, use coal as a primary fuel. Um, there well, are some. Uh, um, we use coal as a primary oh, fuel. Indeed, indeed so. Fuel. We get uh, we get uh, some some fifty percent of our electricity in this country from from coal. The really dirty fuel is not coal. It's wood and especially dried dung. And roughly two billion people in the world depend on those for cooking and heating. And this is the whole point that there are major numbers of people in extremely impoverished parts of the world that are using some of the dirtiest fuels. And as we point to coal, well, indeed, we do use it and it drives the vast majority of our power plants in this country. Yeah. But there are some nations that rely on it for not only powering power plants, but also heating their homes, cooking their meals, okay. on and on. The list goes. I wonder how do we go about bringing balance to this question of trying to to reduce the emissions at, to a reasonable level, while being sensitive to the needs of third world countries that, quite frankly, just don't have the resources to say, okay, close down the coal fired power plant and let's build a nuclear one. That just yeah. isn't an option. While at the same time, not engaging in a massive socialist agenda where we have this huge transference of wealth going on, that to the detriment of richer nations, we are now. Now having to to underwrite, so to speak, the fuel and energy needs of poorer countries. Yeah, and by the way, it's to the detriment of the poorer countries too. All of the economic studies that have been done over the past twenty years or so uh, show consistently that the more uh, money is funneled into poor countries, the more we slow the economic development in those countries because we simply perpetuate corrupt regimes in those countries. The money does not get to the poor. And even what little money gets to the poor through private programs of outright giving of money tends to stifle creativity. It stifles incentive to become economically productive on their own. And it communicates to them the message, you can't do it. Whereas exactly what they need to understand is we can do it. Uh, so uh, so we, we don't want to be just funneling money. That really hurts people. It doesn't help people. But there are a number of different things in what you just said that we, we could discuss. One is it would be really nice if a lot of these countries had the coal plants to shut down. They don't even have those. There are two billion people in this world who do not have any, other, any electricity to their homes, and they just burn wood and you know sticks and dung, and then they breathe in the smoke, and they get tuberculosis and other respiratory diseases, and, and about uh, two to four million of them die every year, and hundreds of millions of them get uh, really devastating diseases that keep them out of work and keep them from producing wealth and climbing out of poverty. 
so what we really need to see is uh, policies that do not stand in the way of providing the cheapest form of, of uh, fuel source for generating electricity to these countries so that they can climb out of the poverty more rapidly. That means that the, the issue of, of balance in that particular respect kind of disappears because uh, as, as you asked the question about uh, reducing emissions, reducing emissions really only makes sense if emissions have been proven to be harmful. Now, there are some sorts of emissions that are definitely harmful, mercury in, in emissions from burning coal and so on, uh, but those can be eliminated pretty easily. Carbon dioxide is the key here, and some people claim that that is driving uh, damaging, uh, dangerous global warming. I think, and uh, many of us working with the Cornwall Alliance think, in fact, all of us do, uh, and we work with excellent climate scientists and others, that there is not good scientific evidence for that, and that instead, increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a good thing because it improves plant growth, raises crop yields, and therefore makes food less expensive. So we don't even aim to reduce CO2 emissions. We shouldn't. Of course, this runs contrary to what uh, Al Gore and all of those on the uh, the pro-emissions reduction side have been arguing for many, many months now, many years, in fact. And the cornerstone of much of what is discussed um, during the Climate Change Summit in uh, Copenhagen. Yeah, that's correct. And because it runs contrary to so much popular opinion and media, uh, media opinion, uh, we considered it very, very important to set forth our reasoning on this very carefully. So we have just released a brand new document called A Renewed Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor of the Theology, Science, and Economics of Global Warming. And what that does is it brings together the work of a large number of scientists, economists, and theologians to give the case, to make the case, that increasing CO2 has not caused any significant warming and uh, the, that it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't portend to cause any significant warming and that therefore it's not a harmful thing. But in fact, instead, it's a very good thing because it increases plant growth and crop yields and therefore diminishes the price of food, helping the world's poor. Uh, that can be seen on our website, cornwallalliance.org, along with another document called an Evangelical Declaration on Global Warming that is based on it. Our conversation with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. He is national spokesperson with the Cornwall Alliance. This is a unique organization and one that you need to be aware of. They are, as we mentioned earlier, an organization of clergy, theologians, religious leaders, scientists, and academics, um, all committed to bringing a balanced biblical view of stewardship to the critical issues of environment and development. Now, you know, we as Christians, we as uh, members of the evangelical community of all, ought to be most interested um, in the care and presence preservation of the planet to which God has given us a responsibility and dominion over. The same token, how do we bring balanced voices to all of this, that we're doing what we need to do where it makes sense, while at the same token, not developing a huge socialist worldview here or a major shift in control and creating a global government. We'll talk more about that aspect of it. We'll also talk about an interesting revelation of the so-called Danish text and what that might mean in terms of sidelining the influence of the UN on this equation and putting the World Bank in charge. A fundamental rebalance of powers? We'll discuss that next as this edition of Lifeline continues with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, again with the Cornwall Alliance. Information on the web at cornwallalliance.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to Lifeline. We continue our conversation today with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. He's a national spokesperson with the Cornwall Alliance. Information about this evangelical organization, a gathering of clergy, theologians, religious leaders, scientists, and academics, along with policy experts, committed to bringing a balanced biblical view of stewardship to the critical issues at hand regarding so-called global warming and the environment. Information on the web at cornwallalliance.org. One of the big issues, in addition to the release of these emails out of the Climate Control Organization in England, has now had added to that equation the early release of the so-called Danish text. Now, I understand that while this is a a draft agreement at this point, uh, what has been leaked seems to be a dramatic departure, uh, Dr. Beisner, from the uh, Kyoto Protocol, which largely had put the United Nations in charge of managing a lot of the finance involved with assisting poorer countries reduce their CO2 emissions. Now, all of a sudden, it looks like the World Bank may be in charge. Yeah, and it would also involve uh, a pledge of a $10 billion a year transfer from the wealthier countries to the poorer countries. I suppose that could be defended if you could show that that money would really help them. Uh, What our history tells us is that that foreign aid like that uh, is very destructive because it just props up corrupt regimes. There's a really excellent book on that recently by by Dambisa Moyo, uh, who is herself African and a Ph.D. economist out of Oxford, called Dead Aid. And just as she argues that all international aid to uh, poor countries should stop, period, because it is always counterproductive. But uh, what's what's happening here is I think it's a very interesting situation because uh, lawmakers, particularly in the United States, have been unwilling, uh, many of them, to sign on to any kind of a a piece of legislation or a treaty that would require severe restrictions in uh, fossil fuel use here in the United States if other countries, including developing countries like China and India, were not also required to make similar sacrifices uh, because of two things. One, it would hurt our competitiveness in, in the world economy. But two, and I think this is far more important and far more relevant, if those other countries don't participate, frankly, we can't make any difference in future temperatures. Well, moreover, if we're the only ones that are reducing the emissions and then we're having to pay out these penalties or fees to assist other countries and now we're reducing our own productivity, that means less money here. In the end, this is not going to serve anybody. No, it's not going to serve anybody. What you're seeing in the Danish text really is uh, uh, the effort of the international international negotiators to force the developing countries to take on the kinds of sacrifices necessary to get the developed countries to be willing to adopt the emissions targets. Well, the problem there is that is clearly going to hurt the economic development in those poor countries, and their leaders are not going to be foolish enough to do that. They know that their people desperately need abundant and affordable energy in order to climb out of poverty. They're not going to bypass that road, and it's the same road that we took, and I think it's frankly unjust for us to ask them to do that. But here's what's problematic, and that is, well, I agree with you, Doctor, that their leaders are not going to be dumb enough to engage in signing on to a treaty that that binds their hands in such a fashion because of how injurious it could be to the development of their economy. My fear is our leaders might be. Many have argued that certain aspects of this takes on less of a feeling of a so-called global warming treaty and more of a global government treaty. Well, perhaps. 
And yet, if a treaty is not signed by a given country, then it doesn't bind that country. And I think we're going to see the vast majority of third world countries refusing to sign that treaty. That will leave the richer countries in the exact same position they were in before of not being able to get their lawmakers to sign on to emissions reductions because they don't want to lose competitiveness. Uh, and in fact, it'll even put them in a worse position because it will, it will make it all the clearer to the poorer countries that what the rich environmentalist elites in the West want is to, to lock the poor into their poverty rather than allowing them to climb out of poverty. And the ironic thing about that, Craig, is this. A clean, healthful, beautiful environment is a costly good. And the richer people are, the more they can afford to pay for that costly good. So slowing economic development for the poor countries is actually the worst thing that we can do for the environment. But at the same token, slowing the economic development in the richer nations that are then poised to no longer assist the poorer nations creates just as much of a problem, does it not? Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it's, it is all pain, no gain. There is, there is no silver lining in this cloud. But I think at this point, the leaders of China and India, looking at the Danish text, figure we've been had. And uh, there's just simply not going to be the cooperation that had been anticipated. You know, China and India uh, are, are marvelous countries in many ways, and they are experiencing rapid economic growth uh, because largely they have allowed their, their citizens the economic freedom to use abundant and affordable energy uh, to drive that growth. They're not going to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. The other question, and that is the UN's apparent, at least from the release of the uh, Danish text, uh, diminished role in all of this. Uh, How is that going to be accepted by any third world or um, so-called vulnerable country that looks to the UN for uh, protection, so to speak, against the big giants, India, China, Russia, the United States? Well, I think uh, that is going to make many of them all the more nervous and all the more unwilling to sign on to a treaty, which, uh, to my thinking, is exactly the right outcome here. Uh, but besides that, uh, the UN, because the uh, as as the Danish text uh, draft puts it, uh, it would really become a partnership between the World Bank and the United Nations Environment Program. Uh, the UN would still be involved, and there are huge ties between the World Bank and the United Nations. Uh, all of these globalists uh, tend to run in the same circles. So uh, I see it as almost more a cosmetic uh, change than a substantive change to be bringing the World Bank into it more. Uh, By the way, it might actually be a slight change in the direction of greater rationality, because frankly, the World Bank folks tend to be a little bit more realistic. They tend to do better cost-benefit analysis than the ideologues who tend to run the U.N., well, at one point we had uh, Paul Wolfowitz in charge, um, so certainly there's, there's some influence from high levels that's not necessarily coming from a hardline uh, leftist viewpoint. Yeah. Um, now, the World Bank has also wasted many billions of dollars on direct foreign aid to, uh, to poor countries. Uh, but uh, at least it tries to do cost-benefit analysis. It, it tends to be run by people who realize that you know, if you spend X on this, you can't spend the same X on that. And uh, so if we're spending trillions of dollars trying to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions, we can't spend those same trillions of dollars 
uh, providing pure drinking water, sewage sanitation, nutrition supplements to food, uh, commu uh, communicative disease suppression, uh, combating malaria, dengue fever, and such things as that. Maybe we need a bit of the intelligence of the World Bank to take over Congress. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure that the World Bank is all that much smarter than Yeah, Congress. yeah. Well, that statement, of course, offered with uh, tongue firmly planted in cheek. Now, firmly. Uh, as we wrap up our conversation today, I realize that you don't have a global climate change uh, crystal ball in front of you. What would be your, your guess, if you were a betting man, as to what the outcome of this might be when it's all done? I think Climategate and the continued cooling of the Earth, which uh, can be traced now at least over the last 12-year period, uh, will will pretty clearly uh, undermine the case for serious reductions in carbon dioxide emissions. Sounding more and more like Al Gore's uh, so-called inconvenient truth is becoming more of a, a very uh, convenient invention. Our thanks well, today to... to himself to, he, put, uh, to push his own wealth. Indeed uh, he's, so. He's heavily invested in carbon trading and carbon offset companies. He'll become the world's first carbon billionaire. <laughs> Indeed so. Oh, we thought there had to be money behind this somewhere. Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, our guest today, national spokesperson with the Cornwall Alliance. Again, a fascinating read in particular uh, of this document a 76-page study entitled A Renewed Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor, an Evangelical Examination of the Theology, Science, and Economics of Global Warming, on the web at cornwallalliance.org. And again, our thanks to Dr. E. Calvin Beisner for being with us. Craig, thank you very much. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.